X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, August 4th. Today, back in the day, August 4th, 1944, Anne Frank was arrested in Amsterdam by German security police following a tip-off from an informer who was never identified. And that same day, August 4th, 1962, today back in the day, Nelson Mandela was captured by South African police. And today, back in the day, August 4th, 1961, Barack Hussein Obama was born. He ended up being the president of the United States. State of Illinois celebrates this day on August 4th of each year. Happy Barack Obama Day. We'll start with the quick six headlines. Kate Kay here with her continued coverage of the Portland City Council vote on facial recognition. She is ahead of the curve on all of that coverage. And then we have an interview with Becca Yerbalau from our Oregon on their opposition to the new Oregon redistricting measure working its way toward the November ballot. We've heard from the proponents. Now it's time to hear the opposition. X-ray. And first up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. According to a Portland State University study, the Portland Police Bureau has deployed tear gas 100 times since May. Meanwhile, Police Chief Chuck Lavelle took to the New York Times while approving meaningful change through peaceful action. He denounced what he described as violence. He meant the protesters. He justified the CS gas, the tear gas. And a Portland demonstrator is facing federal prison after he was identified in a photo posted to social media by his grandma. Come on, grandma. It's a local story. It's now gaining national attention. It started with a video showing a white man in a green vest throwing fireworks next to the federal courthouse. So how did the grandma make the big reveal? She posted a product review with a photo of her grandson, Gabriel, with the title, Fast Shipping, Great Vest. The review says, I got this for my grandson, who's a protester downtown. He uses it every night and says it does the job. After posting a review, someone on the Internet saw it, took a screenshot, tweeted it out. ATF criminal investigators found it. They'd been reviewing security camera footage of protesters, were reviewing videos posted to social media. Gabriel made his first court appearance on Friday, scheduled back in court on Thursday. And U.S. Attorney Billy Williams announced that the 18-year-old has been charged by criminal complaint and faces a minimum sentence of five years and up to 20 years in prison. Come on, man. Come on, gorilla. Grandma was not available for comment, with the exception of the comment section. Oregon Health Authority announced there were 881 new cases over the weekend and six new deaths. We're now up to 19,366 cases. Door-to-door testing initiative, this is the TRACE initiative, has found that 17% of the population of the city of Hermiston has been infected with COVID-19. That's 169 infections per 1,000 people in the city. Perhaps most disconcerting, the study found that 80% of Hermiston residents who tested positive had no symptoms. The virus could be spreading among city residents to more vulnerable people, and people don't even know it. Hermiston, by the way, is an agricultural hub. Lots of onions, lots of watermelons, and one Jeff Smith who worked there after high school as a cattle hand. According to the Oregon Department of Forestry, the coronavirus might be contributing to a 20% increase in human-caused wildfires in July. This year, 90% of Oregon wildfires were caused by humans. That's a jump from the yearly average of 70%. The Department of Forestry is attributing that higher number of wildfires to more people venturing out to enjoy nature after being cooped up for months. Speaking of children, while Portland Public Schools is running online classes for at least the first quarter of the school year, it is also considering offering child care for $1,000 a month. Child care will be made available through groups that traditionally take care of students before and after school. Providers like, and I'm quoting YMCA and Champions, 
and the school district will offer subsidies for those who can't pay the estimated thousand bucks a month price tag. Whole Foods workers in Portland protested after being told they couldn't wear anti-racism buttons. About two to three dozen protesters rallied outside the Whole Foods on Burnside in East Portland on Sunday afternoon. Dylan Woodruff, one of the protesters, told Oregon Live that he created the buttons two weeks ago. Woodruff said the manager had reprimanded him over the buttons and then fired him on Monday. The button said, racism has no place here. It was a phrase that was taken from Whole Foods' mission statement. But a Whole Foods spokesperson said the company's dress code prohibits clothing, and I'm quoting with visible slogans, messages, logos, or advertising that are company-related or statements that are anti-racism. I added that last part. Employees from stores around the country have filed class-action lawsuits against Whole Foods for forbidding them from wearing clothing with the text Black Lives Matter printed on them. What? Whole Foods catering mostly to white people and being insufficiently racially aware? I, come on. Really? Come on, Whole Foods. Two Oregon Marines have been presumed dead in last week's California coast accident. The Marine Corps has identified the victims of last week's assault vehicle training accident off the coast of Southern California. Sixteen personnel were on board when the crew reported taking on water. One Marine was killed. Seven Marines and one Navy sailor are presumed dead. Two of the victims are from Oregon. PFC Jack Ryan Ostrovsky, age 19, from Bend, Oregon, and Lance Corporal Chase Sheetwood, age 21, from Portland. Hmm. Sorry, gentlemen. Rest in peace, gentlemen. Rest in peace. Fox <coughs> News tied a Portland shooting to protest, but the protest and shooting happened five miles apart from each other and were not connected. A cable channel calling itself Fox News published an article on Monday tied a shooting at 600 Northeast 87th Avenue to a Black Lives Matter protest at the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office at 4735 East Burnside. The main protests have been downtown at 1000 Southwest 3rd Avenue. It's a 43-minute walk from the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office to the location of the shooting. It's another hour and 55-minute walk to the U.S. District Courthouse. Now, to be fair, walking is not the only transportation option. In addition to the distance, though, the shooting happened a day before that protest. So who knows? Maybe they rolled or crawled or walked backwards or did little zigzags. And that's why it took a day. Am I being insufficiently fair and balanced about Fox News? If you have comments, you can email the local at xray.fm. A little bit brighter news. Drive-in movies are coming to Portland's South Waterfront. The series is called Cinema Unbound. Of course, we haven't been able to go to movie theaters. One solution, the drive-in. The Northwest Film Center and the Portland Art Museum are working together to offer drive-in movie experiences at Zydell Yards. We covered the story previously, I think, of trying to turn Zydell Yards into a big development, and it hasn't worked out. The Zydell family hasn't gotten all the support or goodies that they want from the city, etc. But meanwhile, now, in that space, there's going to be movies. The event offers cinema classics, indie favorites, new releases, nonfiction, animation, and art across genres and styles. Starts 9 p.m. on Thursday, August 6th, continues into September. Here's a few of the movies. Kindergarten Cop, Milk, Do the Right Thing, and Labyrinth. And again, in case you want to look it up, it's called Cinema Unbound at Sidell Yards. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. With police tactics under immense scrutiny in Portland, the moment could not be any more ripe for a vote on legislation limiting the ability for law enforcement to employ facial recognition. The latest episode of the Band in PDX podcast goes in-depth into police use of facial recognition, how the sheriff's office in Washington County used it, how it's been used to identify Black Lives Matter protesters elsewhere. 
Here's reporter Kate Kay with a glimpse of the full episode of Band in PDX, available on Apple Podcasts, xraypod.com, and other podcast platforms. As Portland protesters demand reductions to police funding, as federal and state police have descended on Portland in the name of property protection and law and order, a vote later this summer on whether to prohibit the Portland Police Bureau and other entities from using facial recognition in the city takes on more heightened significance than ever. One in two American adults is in a law enforcement facial recognition network. That was a startling conclusion in 2016 of a year-long investigation by Georgetown Law's Center on Privacy and Technology. Jameson Spivak is policy associate at Georgetown Law. Uh, The center did a nationwide study of um, law enforcement agencies at the state and local level. Um, And it found that about 54% of Americans were in a a database accessible um, for face recognition, um, and that about a quarter of law enforcement agencies around the country uh, had access to face recognition. We don't know for sure um, whether this is this has grown in use, whether it's decreased in use. However, the number of bans on facial recognition, especially bans on the use of the technology by law enforcement, has grown. They've been established in cities including San Francisco, Oakland, and most recently, Boston. Okay, so on to the Portland Police Bureau. They say they don't use facial recognition, and right now, they don't want to use it. Portland Police Assistant Chief Ryan Lee read from prepared statements during a January facial recognition work session held by the city council. Again, the police bureau is not seeking this technology currently but rather I am discussing the path forward if we were to acquire this technology. If the police bureau were to use facial uh, recognition technology, we would develop an oversight body and seek public input prior to any program implementation. We will limit the use to post hoc investigations of violent crimes. In other words, the violent crimes such as homicides, assaults, and robberies or sexual assaults that already occurred and there exists lawfully obtained imagery from a venue the unidentified person would have no reasonable expectation of privacy. The police bureau would not use live monitoring, or what has been referred to as surveillance monitoring. There are lots of detractors of facial recognition, and many, including the drafters of Portland's ban ordinances, emphasize the potential for the technology to lead to harmful impacts on minority populations. Recent research from a federal agency provides objective, scientifically rigorous evidence to back up those concerns. A study published in December by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, found higher rates of false positives for Asian and African-American faces compared to faces of Caucasians. There were also noteworthy inaccuracies in another type of test involving the sort of technique police would use to narrow down a list of crime suspect candidates. NIST found higher rates of false positives for African-American females. That means more black women could end up in a suspect list based on an inaccurate match. During that city council session about facial recognition, Portland City Council Commissioner Chloe Udaly emphasized the real impact that false positive results from a facial recognition system might have on the lives of already vulnerable people. You know, it may not sound like a big deal 
to a lot of people to be mistakenly identified. There's still a process that happens afterwards, but we know that that mistake can be much more dangerous for some people than for others. And I'm really concerned that we would be creating an even more hostile environment for uh, people in our community who are already experiencing disparate impacts from multiple angles. So that NIST study has been influential since it came out late last year. The thing is, one of the most scrutinized suppliers of facial recognition to law enforcement didn't offer up its algorithms for evaluation. Amazon and Amazon's recognition software. It wasn't part of the study. That matters even on a local level here in Portland. Because Amazon's recognition system had been used right next door to Portland by the Sheriff's Office of Washington County in Oregon. I spoke in June with Danny DiPietro, the communications sergeant at the Sheriff's Office. This is not by any means the be-all, catch-all, saving grace for law enforcement at all. We don't we don't put this out in the media or to the out in public and just use it by, you know, just taking pictures of the crowd. That's not within our policy. And he said there were multiple times the Amazon system helped investigators. He couldn't share detail because some were still open investigations, but he said it helped identify thieves, burglars, and attempted rapists. By July 30th, Oregon Governor Kate Brown had brokered an agreement with the Trump administration. Federal officials would leave the city. Oregon state troopers would deploy outside the federal courthouse downtown in their place. An Oregon state police spokesperson told me the organization does not use facial recognition. For now, it looks like city council commissioners will vote on the facial recognition ban in late August. For X-Ray.fm, I'm Kate Kay. Becca Yerbalau from Our Oregon and Jefferson Smith are up next with a focus on the redistricting ballot measure working its way to the Oregon ballot. Coming on the line now is Becca Yerbalash, the executive director of Our Oregon. It's a big coalition organization that was organized by labor and progressive organizations to advocate primarily on ballot initiatives. And Becca Yerbalau is here to join us to talk about Initiative Petition 57 and maybe some other stuff. Becca Yerbalau, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So first, why don't you give your introduction of Our Oregon? I think lots of people are familiar, but some people might not be. Sure. So we are a 501c3 political nonprofit who've been around for about 15 years. As you said, it's a coalition of organizations. Um, and we specialize in ballot measures. And we kind of watch the process from soup to nuts, as I like to say, from the titling process and the filing process, um, making sure to protect the integrity of the system um, to the, the end part where we actually run ballot measure campaigns. I have said the biggest thing that I think could get on the ballot is the one that would have the biggest impact on future policymaking in Oregon and our intersection with federal policymaking is, in fact, the potential of Initiative Petition 57 getting on the ballot. Is that an overstatement? How important do you think this initiative could potentially be? I think the initiative will have sweeping ramifications on our democracy um, that are concerning and that voters should be very concerned about, especially who this measure excludes from the process. Talk about your concerns. Sure. So, you know, the concept of an independent commission can be an important democracy reform, 
when done the right way. And unfortunately, this measure gets it dangerously wrong. So this constitutional amendment does more harm to Oregonians who've been historically and systemically left out of our democracy. It excludes, it excludes literally hundreds of thousands of Oregonians. Um, and young people in particular, new citizens, low-income Oregonians, black and indigenous and other people of color in particular are excluded because of the requirements. It also punishes and excludes Oregonians for being civically engaged by banning them from serving on the commission. Um, a couple of other important fatal flaws, <clears throat> excuse me, is that this constitutional amendment would repeal the current process to vastly overrepresent one political party um, compared to the registration numbers in the state. Mm-hmm. I understand that last piece, Becca, and one of the critiques that came up previously is it gives Democrats and Republicans, or the first and the second biggest party, I believe is how it's worded in the initiative petition, the first and second biggest party, the same amount of representation on that panel, even if the second biggest party was half as big as the biggest party, and right now the biggest, the second biggest party is what, about two-thirds as big as the biggest party? Yeah, Democrats, if you look at registration, they're about 35% of registered voters in Oregon. Republicans are 25%, and non-affiliateds are nearly 33. And there's actually no guarantee in this measure that non-affiliated voters will have any representation. You know, they purport to have these three buckets, one for Democrats, one for Republicans, and one for other. But other is not only non-affiliated voters, folks who haven't chosen the party, but also all minor parties. And because there are no hard and fast requirements, it could all be non uh, minor party representation in that third bucket. And so that there is a very real potential that one third, more than one third of voters will not be represented on this commission. You made another claim, and that is that it leaves out important parts of our community. Bolster that case. Say more about that. Sure. So the measure requires you to be, has been consistently registered with the same party or no party for three years. So if you think about that, young people who are registering for the first time or who registered two years ago would be disqualified um, and banned from participating. New citizens um, who are just now eligible to register, but regardless of how civically engaged they've been up to this point, are banned from registering because of this requirement. Low-income Oregonians, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, the bucket um, they fall in is new registrants. So it's a presidential year, and we see an uptick in folks registering to vote for the first time or registering to vote after they've lapsed um, in order to engage in the democracy and vote in a presidential election. We have seen, um, consistently research has shown, that they skew um, over-representing low-income and people of color. And so by saying if there you have to have three years of consistent registration with a particular party, any new entrant to democracy in the last two years and 11 months or somebody who is on again, off again a little bit as related to maybe the presidential election, those folks don't get the play. That's exactly right. A cynic might say that really you're just trying to preserve your power, that what's really going on is that the large big D Democratic Party establishment it's and the organizations that uh, sort of comprise it are trying to make sure that they can maintain some degree of a hold on the redistricting process. What would be your response to that critique? Well, first of all, our organ isn't a partisan organization. Um, so I think that um, first and foremost is a false claim. We have a lot of folks who are part of our coalition who don't align themselves with any um, particular party. And 
I would also say why, if we, if there are concerns with the current system, we should approach it um, thoughtfully, engage the most impacted people and the folks who are least represented in our democracy in designing the policy um, that we move to. And I don't understand why we would um, repeal uh, our current process and amend our constitution to put something like this measure that's so deeply flawed and exclusionary um, into, into place. What were your critiques with the design? Not, I don't mean the result of that design, but the process of the design with this petition. Well, a couple of things. I think the proponents have talked um, extensively about how this is modeled out of the California Redistricting Commission. Um, and we've seen what happens um, when uh, Oregon looks at kind of cookie cutter versions of policies that are um, imported from other states. And it just doesn't make sense for Oregon. And I'd also point out that there is some recent um, news articles on the fact that the California redistricting um, experiment is failing um, people of color in California. In fact, their first pass um, at appointing commissioners um, made it so that no representation from the Latinx community is on the commission, which is ridiculous considering um, their demographics in California. So why would we why would we bring a cookie cutter version of a failed model from one state um, into Oregon? I, I, this is a piece I didn't know. You're saying the thing that we're voting on is essentially the same uh, piece of legislation that California has already done. Yes, the proponents often say that this is based on the California model. And in the and California been, model, and in the California model, the your argument is that your fears are seen to be realized there. That folks who are newer entrants to the process, people of color, historically marginalized and disempowered communities, have not been at the table to shape districts. That's exactly right. If you look at California um, in terms of who applied to serve on their commission. 59% were men and the majority of the applicants were white and through their random um, process, they only they did not select any representatives from the Latinx community. And my fear is that this measure, um, which actually has additional flaws um, because it was tweaked sli slightly in ways that actually do more harm. My fear is that that will be exactly what happens in Oregon. The proponents have also talked about how they don't believe this measure or this policy. They do not purposely want it to be representative of anything. And so what that, what that results in is that there is really um, a huge risk for communities who haven't historically had a voice in our democracy to continue to not have a voice. And in fact, lessen the voice that they do have currently, because at least now folks can vote for their legislator. And so for whatever reason they have an issue with them, they can hold them accountable through elections. On the commission, once they're appointed, and the first pass of appointment is through um, administrative law judges who are you know, unelected and unaccountable, and they basically get to choose who they believe qualifies. And then the Secretary of State develops a system by which they randomly select. And again, we've seen what happens in random selections in California. Folks get left out. Do we have a legislature that is reflective of the state now? No. Where are we falling short? Uh, I think we're falling short in particular um, around communities of color. And I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And I think there's a um, large uh, coalition of folks who are deeply committed to making sure that that changes from recruiting diverse candidates to ensuring that we support their success when they're on the ballot. 
are Republicans from a ideological or party breakdown perspective, are Republicans getting the representation that they merit in the state of Oregon? Uh, I would, I mean, I would put that question to them. They clearly, if you look at the funders actually of this measure, they clearly are trying to put a thumb on the scale through this measure. Again, we, we mentioned the fact that they actually on this commission get more representation than, than they have um, in the state. And if you look at who's funding it, it's kind of the traditional lineup of Republican and corporate interests, you know, from failed gubernatorial candidate Newt Bueller to the folks who uh, gave money to oppose the recent um, homelessness services measure in the spring. So it is, it's clear who's behind it. It's clear that what they want to accomplish, which is to essentially tip the scales in their favor. So this is a big claim, right? And say more about that, or if there's data we can look at, right? Listeners yeah. understand now that you're opposed to this thing, and so they'll see you know, the data through that filter. But I think seeing that data would be really useful. Say more about who's funding this thing and where people can find out for themselves. Sure. So it's um, all publicly accessible data. Um, so you can go to Orstar on the Secretary of State's website and check it out. And I actually have the CMEs in front of me. So um, one of their largest um, one-time contributors was the Oregon Business and Industries Issues Pack that gave $35,000. The Standard has given $20,000, which is an insurance company. The Oregon Association of Realtors has given $10,000. The Oregon Auto Dealers has given $10,000. The Oregon Beverage Pack has given $10,000. Um, actually, the standard has given more than that. I'm, they appear in here a number of times. The logging industry um, has shown up. Um, so, yeah, it's very clear. You know, you can tell um, a lot about an initiative by who their friends are. So if you um, go to this publicly accessible data, you will see who is behind this measure. Um, and if you compare that to two measures and candidates that they've supported in the past, you'll get a good sense. What is your fear of why the of why some of the corporate lobby, or a good chunk of them, are supporting Oregon Business Industry as the, the new name of Oregon's now leading what corporate lobby organization? Spell out why you think they're supporting this and prioritizing this and putting five figures into it each. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it hinges on the fact that Republicans are overrepresented on um, this commission. Um, in fact, it'll, it's written into the Constitution and from here until eternity that they will continue to be overrepresented on this commission. And with the current makeup of the Oregon legislature, um, they are looking for a different avenue to make an influence and make sure that they can elect candidates who support their corporate interests. Oregon is going to get a new congressional seat mm -hmm. in 2021, almost certainly. And tell us about the scenarios you see new congressional district drawing happening. Yeah. Before I do, I just want to actually point out um, the fact that you brought up that congressional redistricting is also in here um, is another fatal flaw of this measure. So this measure seeks to repeal and amend our Constitution around state legislative um, redistricting, as well as insert into our Constitution new language around congressional redistricting. And our initiative system and our Constitution is clear that that is... Um, an unconstitutional way to put a measure on the ballot if you're amending two different parts of the Constitution. We haven't talked about the the legal um, uh, issues and ramifications of this measure, but right now it is currently being considered in Marion County Court, the constitutionality of this measure. And I, I think when you had the proponents on last time, they talked about their lawsuit. So they came up against the last day to turn in signatures and decided, well, 
we got to change the rules of the game because we're not going to be able to f- uh, cross the finish line. So they sued in federal court, um, and now they've had a reduced um, threshold in terms of what they have to turn in, as well as an extended timeline. And I just want to spend a little bit um, of time, because I think this is so important for your listeners who care about our democracy and the integrity of our initiative system. Their move has can have and is already having um, significant sweeping ramifications on our democracy. In fact, within just a couple of weeks, there was another group, gosh, I, I think they're called the Move Oregon's Border for Greater Idaho. <laughs> they um, used the same claims that IP57 did and said, well, we didn't qualify because of COVID, so you, know, you should lower the threshold for us. Um, and that's just the beginning of folks getting in the queue using this court case um, to again, diminish the integrity of our democracy. Was that court case decided wrong? Greater Idaho, by the way, is this idea that you'll take the Republican portions, the sort of red swaths of Oregon, you'll take some of the red swaths, I'm trying to get to the map here, because I think you also. I think they also take then even some of Northern California, not Northwestern California, but sort of Northeastern California, and then I think they head out to, I don't know, Wyoming or Montana uh, and makes Idaho this enormous state, uh, bastion of red American America, so goes the idea. Do you think that case was wrongly decided? In listening, yeah, in listening to the proceedings, I think one of the things that's hard, and actually something that our organ is working on, um, to democratize and, and make available information on how ballot measures work, how they're run. Um, so honestly, more folks, um, in particular who haven't had access to democracy, can get their issues before voters. But it is a hard and complicated system, and I think one of the things that's unfortunate is that the proponents um, vastly overstated the fact that they uh, think that they would have qualified anyway. I mean, you'll notice there are, of course, um, folks like us who are raising concerns, but there really isn't yet an organized um, opposition, mainly because folks who have been watching it had no, I mean, we were almost guaranteed that they weren't going to qualify because we saw no evidence before COVID. There are two other measures, Initiative Petition 34 um, and Initiative Petition 40, uh, 44, who managed um, to make the ballot um, under COVID conditions. And I'll also bring up a local initiative here that turned in enough signatures to qualify and that's the um, Universal Preschool Now. Um, they started long after the redistricting measure, um, and they managed to turn in enough signatures to qualify. So it's a false claim to say that they um, didn't qualify because of COVID. They didn't qualify, honestly, because uh, voters weren't supporting their issue. Uh, you said there's not enough support. That's why they didn't get on the ballot. Do you think that this gets on the ballot, it passes? I think that's a good question. I mean, I talked earlier about the fact that the concept, when done right, um, can be an important democracy reform. But I think once um, voters hear about these fatal flaws and who's excluded from participating, um, I think, I mean, they'll have to, uh, they will they will reject the measure because of its fatal flaws. Hopefully look beyond the kind of 30 second elevator speech talking point and understand how much damage this initiative will do to our democracy. 
I'll give an impression, and that impression is, and, and feel free to disabuse me of it, and thank you again. We're listening, by the way, to Becky Urbala, the head of uh, our Oregon, our Oregon uh, probably the leading constabulary on the uh, on the progressive side with respect to ballot initiatives. And we're talking about Initiative Petition 57, which would change the way districts are drawn. We've had proponents on it. We've actually had proponents on it twice uh, and wanted to make sure that we are given each proponent or opponent to have their genuine case to make their strongest case so you can make your decision as a listener. Here is another description of the dynamic that redistricting reform that some some commission system to draw lines might be well and good. But if Eric Holder gets a bunch of Democrats to like the idea and if the kinds of states that listen to somebody like Eric Holder and then red states don't do it, then we could have a less representative Congress than we have right now and a less representative set of state legislature than we have right now. And that a lot of the debate on the on the details of the of how the piece of legislation is drawn up is really maybe subordinate to the big dynamics that really what people are worried about or really what opponents are worried about is a further Republican shift in in how uh, representation results relative to registration numbers. Is that too, a consp- too conspiratorial a view? Is that too big picture a view? Does that miss the most important stuff? I mean, I think that's a critical uh, point for this particular measure, the fact that it actually will result in over-representation of Republican voices and redrawing our lines. So I, I think it's a good point for folks to make. I also, there is... There's nothing in the measure that says it has to be, there has to be representation from certain areas or regions of Oregon or um, demographics. And I should, I got to cite my dad's argument, which is he thinks it should be based on what I said. He thinks it ought to be done nationally. He says, if we're going to have a change in how districts are drawn, that we should have it be a national system uh, and therefore one that gets us to an objective that of accurate representation, of representation of legislatures and Congress that reflects where we are as, uh, as a national community. Can you win this in court? It looks like the last case didn't go your way. I know that the Secretary of State, who's a Republican, has been uh, is going along with McShane's order. The uh, Attorney General, who's a Democrat, is trying to challenge this thing. Any prognostications for the court fight? Yeah, I think there are two legal avenues. One I mentioned earlier, which is um, determining the constitutionality of the measure, and that's here in state court, filed in um, Marion County, and we'll uh, hear that case in the next couple of weeks. And then the state did um, make a choice to appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Um, we, have, we're looking at a timeline of sometime in mid-August, um, seeing a ruling from the Ninth Circuit. And we're really glad that the state, um, decided to appeal because again, this has sweeping ramifications, long-term implications on our democracy and the integrity of our initiative system. If this ruling is allowed to stand, then it really opens up the floodgates to special interests claiming um, different circumstances kept them from the ballot and um, asking the courts to put them on without voter a whole lot of voter support. Something i got to ask in fairness, you had pointed out some of the donors to this thing and said, in, from your perspective, it's a, it's a bunch of sort of the larger corporate power in the state that's funding this thing. One might also say, well, yeah, that's kind of where the money is. you got to raise the money from somewhere. One thing I failed to mention, though, that among the groups that are pushing this are groups like Common Cause and League of Women Voters. What do you think they're missing? What do you think they got wrong? And not to rehash the particular policy elements, but there's some groups that people really respect that are pushing this thing. It's not just standard insurance and Oregon business and industry. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for them, um, but it looks to me as though um, their enthusiasm for the general concept um, has put them ahead of the implications of this particular policy. In fact, the proponents, we've heard, heard um, Norm from the League of Women Voters say repeatedly in different settings that this may not be the best measure, um, but it's better than the current system. And um, you know, there is a lot of acknowledgement that even from the proponents that there are flaws in this measure. And again, it goes back to process. Um, I wish they would have taken a concept and turned it over to uh, the folks who are least represented and most impacted by our democracy, who would have identified, for example, this this barrier of having been registered for three years. If you have a lived experience having not been registered for three years, you could have raised your hand in the development of that policy process and said, you know what, that excludes me. And so it really goes back to who's at the table to craft the policy, regardless of the intention. I want to say thanks to Becky Yerbalau. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Kate and Becca for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing with a friend. Thanks for giving a gushing, favorable five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.